Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 152, Bardas Focus. Since we resume the narrative, I've focused exclusively on the power struggle within Byzantium. In a sense, this conflict has been going on for 30 years, ever since Romanus II's unexpected death left Nicephorus Phocus with the opportunity to seize the throne. The army dominated the court for the next 13 years, and the past two episodes have shown the tug-of-war which developed between the military and civilian leaders following the death of John Simiskees. Although Basil was now emperor, he wasn't able to govern without the cooperation of the Focus family. In turn, they were not able to dictate foreign policy without the support of the palace. Today, the man in the middle, the eunuch Le Capinos, will be removed from the equation and war between the two pillars of the empire will resume. We left off last week in 982 with Ibn Shahram's embassy to Constantinople. Basil had apparently agreed to hand Aleppo over to the Buyids in exchange for the return of the rebel general Bardas Skliros. Le Capinos had not been happy with this capitulation, but supposedly agreed rather than let the Focads drag the empire to war. I also told you about the official Nicephorus Uranos, Basil's one senior ally at court, as far as we know. In typical Le Capinos fashion, the eunuch insisted that Uranos accompany Ibn Shahram back to Baghdad to sign the treaty, thus removing his great-nephew's friend from the palace. Uranos would not return for five years, and the treaty was never put into effect. In part because Baghdad's moment of relevance in the Levant was already over. Ibn Shahram's master, Adud Adola, died in March 983, and the city began to slip back into chaos. As if to remind us who the real threat was, a few months later, the Fatimids succeeded in capturing Damascus. The Fatimids were always keen to try and carry the momentum of victory on to greater conquests, and by September, they were at the gates of Aleppo. This Fatimid attempt to capture the city was part of the reason that no deal was done over Skliros. It was pretty clear that Baghdad didn't have the power to stop its fellow Muslims from interfering with Aleppo, let alone the Byzantines. The Fatimids set up a siege of the city, but had to abandon it after a couple of weeks. Bardas Focus was monitoring the situation, and as soon as the Arabs began marking out their camp, he was on the move. The Fatimids were not at full strength, and so when they heard he was coming, they packed up and left. Focus kept going, though, and camped outside Aleppo's walls himself. He demanded two years' worth of tribute payments and said he wouldn't leave until he got them. 
one for this year and one for the next. He was technically fulfilling the terms of the original treaty with the Emirate by protecting them from Fatimid aggression. However, the request for the following year's tribute in advance indicated the lack of faith he had in Saad ad-Dawla. The domestic knew full well that the emir had lobbied for Baghdad's help to throw off the Byzantine yoke. However, Saad did not want to be conquered by the Fatimids either, and since he was paying for Byzantine protection, he suggested that Phocas attack Fatimid territory in retaliation. A focus took him up on this and sacked the city of Amisa, or Homs, as the Arabs called it. A warning against further encroachment. We've spent a lot of the past few episodes discussing Aleppo. It had become the centre of the balance of power between Constantinople, Baghdad and Cairo. And it's worth remembering that it was not just the city itself that was at stake. The emirate of Aleppo was also a state which controlled the surrounding farmland and other cities. Most importantly, it controlled the caravan routes bringing trade from Baghdad to the Mediterranean. All this squabbling over the emirate is important to understand since it's here that tensions amongst the Romans will flare up and lead to a resumption of civil war. We move forward two years to 985. No deal has been reached with Baghdad, and now Aleppo owe another round of tribute. Uh, if you believe they should be honouring the original treaty made with the Romans back in 969. Saad ad refused to pay, and so Bardas Focus saddled up and marched into Syria. But he didn't head for Aleppo. Instead, he set up a siege of Apamea, a city which belonged to the emirate, but a long way to the south of Aleppo itself. And meanwhile, the Fatimids had captured an important fortress on the Syrian coast called Balanias. The governor of Antioch, Leo Melisinos, led out that city's garrison to recover it. We pause there for a moment and head back to Constantinople. The emperor was no longer a naive 18-year-old. He was now 27 and had chafed for too long under his great-uncle's tutelage. Perhaps the departure of Uranos had spurred him on to seek other allies at court, because we're told that he finally took action against Le Capinos, relieving him of his responsibilities and placing him under house arrest. Soon afterwards, Basil discovered that the eunuch was still plotting and was forced to send him into exile. We're given no more details than that, although I will talk about their relationship in the next episode. But let's follow events as they unfolded. Le Capinos was placed under arrest, then caught still in contact with his allies and sent out of the city. It took a few weeks for this information to reach Syria, and when it did, Leo Melisinos recalled his troops from their operation and marched back to Antioch. And meanwhile, a letter reached Phocas from the emperor, ordering him to abandon the siege of Apamea and return to his post. Now, that might not sound like much, but let me present you with some historical speculation. Le Capinos had spent a decade keeping his great-nephew as his subordinate. In the last three years, the emperor had grown ever more assertive and had cultivated allies who could help him circumvent the eunuch's power. Le Capinos had no intention of surrendering full control of the state, so he whispered in the ear of the Focads that he might one day need their assistance to maintain his hand on the tiller. That summer, with suspicion on both sides simmering, Basil moved against his prime minister. From his confinement, Le Capinos sends out a call for help to his allies in the army. Melisinos abandons his campaign and rushes back to Antioch. He believes that the army is about to march on the capital, restore the eunuch, 
and perhaps install a new emperor. On discovering that his great-uncle was still active, Basil has him exiled and writes a letter to Bardas Phocas ordering him to disperse his army, in other words, trying to deprive him of the means to start a rebellion. There is even the question of why Bardas Phocas wasn't at Aleppo. Why Apamea? Was he already anticipating the need to have the army gathered, not bogged down in a difficult siege of the emirate's capital, and ready to move back home if needed? Now, I should stress that that is all speculation. Our sources aren't clear on the sequence of events, nor on the motivations of those involved. But I presented it here as modern historians do, to give you a flavour of what might have been going on. The actual facts we have are these. Le Capinos was sent into exile, where he would die a short while later. Bardas Phocas obediently abandoned his campaign and marched home. The emperor sent a stern warning to Leo Melisinos. He ordered the general to return to the fort of Balanias and capture it, or else he could pay for the entire campaign himself, a crippling sum of money. Amelisinos returned to Balanias and took it. When autumn came, Basil demoted the senior members of the military establishment. Melisinos was recalled to the capital for reassignment, as was Calokiros Delphinas, Phocas's man in Italy. Bardas Phocas himself was stripped of the title of Domestic of the Scoli. He was made the new Dukes of Antioch, still a powerful position and essentially head of the Eastern armies, but it was a significant demotion. Whatever really happened that summer, Basil's behaviour indicates his deep distrust for the Phocas faction and his determination to take full control of his government. This whole period between the end of Bardas Sclerosis' revolt and now has been hard to nail down. Six years in which we know very little about what was happening inside the empire. From this point on, we're much clearer on events as Byzantium slides toward another civil war. And hopefully you can see the deeply problematic power dynamic. Antony Caldellis puts it clearly. There was an increasingly strong-willed emperor staring across Anatolia at an ambitious general whose family and personal history was anything but reassuring. This could not last for long. No one had any doubt that Basil was the legitimate emperor, but many now believed that a magnate general was needed to ensure that Byzantium maintained its military dominance. The people of Constantinople had little interest in another focus taking charge of their streets, but even they had to admit that the focades brought victory. This was Basil's dilemma. How could he wrestle that military prestige away from the eastern armies and claim it for himself? If he could do that, then he could dismiss Bardas Phocas from office, removing the threat which hung over him. To address this, Basil decided to lead a military campaign in person. He would need to avoid the Eastern Front, where the armies could not be trusted. So instead, he looked to the Balkans, where the revived Bulgarian state was conveniently making trouble. I'll be dedicating a whole episode to the Bulgarian story, so I won't go into details now. You already know that the new Bulgarian kingdom rose in the mountains of Macedonia. And for now, all you need to remember is that the new ruler was called Samuel, and that he'd begun to raid imperial territory. In the summer of 986, Basil led an army to Serdica the city on the western edge of the territory that Zimisces had conquered a decade earlier. We don't know if the city had been in Roman hands at some point during this time, 
or if this campaign was aimed at installing a garrison there to help protect imperial possessions. What we do know is that by the time the emperor arrived, the city was in Samuel's camp and shut its gates. Samuel and his army were nearby, but not wanting to face the imperial forces head-on, they waited in the mountains. On campaign with the emperor was Leo the deacon, our historian. He says that for 20 days the army sat idly outside the city, losing its discipline. He blames this on the emperor's sub-commanders, but it can't have helped that Basil had never been on campaign before. Next, the Bulgarians ambushed the Roman foraging parties, cutting men down and stealing their animals. The Byzantines made an assault on the walls, but it failed, and Basil began to lose heart. Apparently, there were also rumours of treachery in the rear. Leo Melisinos had clearly pleaded his innocence to the emperor over the Le Cabinos affair and had been appointed to guard the road back to the capital. Now it was whispered that he was plotting again. With supplies running low, the emperor abandoned the siege. An imperial army was not hard to track, and its movements were easy to predict. Watching from the mountains, Samuel raced ahead of the Romans and set up an ambush. We've been here many times before. The Bulgarians were adept at traversing their terrain and using it to their advantage. Basil had deliberately shunned the senior magnate commanders and trusted less experienced men. Surely, had Bardas Phocas, son of Leo, been present, the Romans would have taken greater precautions. But travelling through mountains they didn't know, tired, hungry, and disillusioned, they blundered into disaster. As the Byzantines marched through a narrow defile known as Trajan's Gate, they suddenly found themselves under attack. Basil, Leo the Deacon, and others at the head of the line managed to make it out alive. But thousands either tumbled into gullies, were trampled underfoot, or killed by Samuel's men. The imperial tent and baggage fell into enemy hands, along with weapons and animals. After decades in which they had been masters of mountain terrain, this was a stark reminder to the Romans of the importance of local knowledge. As the remnants of his army began to gather at Philippopolis, Basil realized the terrible mistakes which he'd overseen. Melisinos was waiting for him, innocently. Instead of bolstering his military credentials, the emperor had just underlined the importance of the eastern magnates to a successful military campaign. Well aware that he'd just shot himself in both feet, Basil moved quickly back to the capital to see what the reaction would be. The first to react to the news was the governor of Baghdad. Four years had now passed since Ibn Sharam had returned with the agreed treaty, and yet no progress had been made on swapping the aging Sclerose for Aleppo. The new governor of the city decided it was time to act. The Roman defeat in Bulgaria was a big setback for Basil, now was the best moment to release Sclerose in the hopes that he would seize the throne. Before he left, they made the general sign an agreement that he would honour the stipulations of the treaty they'd been trying to make with Basil. Sclerose did as they asked, and in December 986, he set off for Romania. Unfortunately for Sclerose, the Buyids could not spare many troops for his attempt on the throne. They did give him some cash, though, so as he travelled home he began recruiting Bedouin and Kurdish tribesmen. He spent the winter with Armenian allies, who joined his cause, and then finally he appeared before Melitine in February 987. The city had supported him eleven years earlier, and did so again now. The governor opened the gates 
and Bardas Skleros was hailed as emperor for the second time. This was a humiliation for Basil. His efforts to neutralise Skleros had all failed, his campaign had been a disaster, and now, worst of all, he was forced to reinstate Bardas' focus as domestic of the Scoli. What else could he do? Focas remained the army's natural leader and had defeated the rebel nine years earlier. The emperor hoped that the enmity between the two men was strong enough to ensure that Focus would toe the line. The general accepted the order and headed for his home base of Cappadocia. He called up the eastern armies and they began to gather in Charcianum. However, Focus spent that summer discussing his future with his inner circle. It's worth pointing out that he'd taken orders from the palace for a decade now. He hadn't rebelled during that time, he hadn't turned on Basil when he'd been demoted, nor when he heard about the defeat in Bulgaria. Perhaps Phocas really was content to be the leader of the army so long as the emperor treated him with due respect. According to one source, this is what bothered the eastern commanders. Obviously, Basil's defeat in Bulgaria made him vulnerable, but it was more the fact of the campaign than its ignominious end. The emperor had deliberately excluded the senior magnates from the fight, denying them glory and money, but also signalling his desire to eventually do without them. Allegedly, Basil didn't even consult his domestic about the campaign. Having already got rid of Le Capinos, the lines of communication were withering away. Perhaps we should get rid of him before he gets rid of us. That summer, on the estate of Efstathios Malienos, Bardas Phocas was hailed emperor for the second time. This put Bardas Skleros in a difficult position. His only hope of successfully rebelling lay in the eastern armies. But they were now gathered just across the mountains in full support of his main rival. Skleros decided to negotiate. Perhaps he could rule in the eastern borderlands, sharing the title of emperor with Phocas, who would install himself in Constantinople. It sounded an unlikely deal, but Skleros had few other options. His advisers and family told him not to trust Phocas. But Skleros made the journey to Cappadocia and placed himself in his enemy's hands. Perhaps he relied on the fact that many of his partisans now served in Phocas's army. And sure enough, Phocas immediately placed his imperial brother under arrest. He did not harm him, so Skleros' calculation was correct, but he did imprison him in a local fortress. Ironically, it was the same stronghold which Phocas himself had fled to 17 years earlier. That was during his rebellion against Zimis Keys, and the man who'd come that day to accept his surrender was, of course, Skleros. Interestingly, Skleros' son, Romanos, knowing a bad deal when he saw one, had abandoned his father's cause. He slipped away, travelled to Constantinople, and offered his services to Basil. Again, the Byzantine aristocracy took care of one another and took political betrayals in their stride. This defection, though, was of no solace to Basil II. He now faced the challenge that he'd been fearing his whole life. How often had he imagined being killed by one of the powerful generals who circled the throne? Now, finally, the Eastern military were united behind one man. That was the reality of Focus's position. Unlike Skleros's revolt a decade earlier, there was no opposition in Anatolia. Focus marched to the Bosphorus unopposed, the eastern armies fell into line and took their orders from the nephew of Nicephorus. 
Several focus allies now turned on Basil, as he'd suspected they would, including Leo Melisinos and Calokiros Delphinus. Phocas seems to have set himself up at Nicaea. From that city, he could administer Anatolia and keep an eye on his two armies. He sent one under Delphinus to Chrysopolis, the suburb of Constantinople in Asia. There they would demonstrate the military threat hanging over the city and be ready to hop across the Bosphorus if the opportunity arose. The other was commanded by Leo Melisinos and headed for Abydos. The customs post and fortress guarded the entrance to the Hellespont. It had been the key target for Sclerosis' rebellion as well. Melisinos now besieged from the land, while the Anatolian fleet set up a blockade. In Constantinople, Basil was nervous, but busy. He seems to have kept the capital calm throughout this time. There is some debate about whether or not he cancelled the legislation of Nicephorus Phocas, which restricted churches and monasteries from acquiring more land. It would certainly have endeared him to the clergy, but they seem to have supported him anyway. He was definitely able to bring in grain from the Black Sea region to make up for the shipments being blocked to the south but his main concern remained the army. The forces he had at his disposal were no match for the eastern troops, especially not after the mauling they'd received from the Bulgarians. Money was also a potential issue. Phocas could pay his men from the revenues of Anatolia, while Basil now had to make do with the poorer western provinces. If Phocas could get an army into Europe then the treasury would eventually run dry. Even in this vulnerable position, though, the palace still had resources at its disposal that rebels could only dream of. Basil looked north. The men bringing him his grain also brought messages from the empire's most recent adversary, the Rus. As you know, On his way back from the Battle of Dristra, the Rus prince Sviatoslav was ambushed by the Pechenegs and cut down. This left the towns on the Dnieper River divided between his sons. Over the next few years, they fought amongst themselves until Vladimir emerged as the new master of Kiev. Vladimir was an illegitimate son of Sviatoslav, and after struggling to impose himself, he hired an army of Scandinavian mercenaries who helped him kill various members of his family and secure control of the Rus state. Although it was based on the trading towns of the Dnieper rather than the grasslands which surround it, there was something of the steppe about the Rus kingdom. Vladimir had to campaign annually to make sure the tributary peoples all fell into line. Ruling through fear over disparate populations was a tiring business. Like many a ruler, Vladimir hoped to unite his followers through religious belief. After he'd seized control of Kiev, he patronized multiple pagan deities, hoping to associate himself with their power. But he began to consider that if he imported one of the religions of the book, he would be able to give his polyglot kingdom a sense of unity. One God, one law, in one language. In celebrated legend, Vladimir's envoys sought out the religious services of their neighbours rejected Islam because it would mean giving up alcohol, and chose Roman Orthodoxy because of the magnificence of the Hagia Sophia. In reality, though, Byzantine Christianity was the obvious choice. Not only was the trade link with Constantinople the key to Kiev's prosperity, but the Slavonic liturgy of the Bulgarians 
had demonstrated a practical means of accomplishing conversion. The timeline of the negotiations is unknown, but Basil's sudden desperation for an ally put the Rus conversion on the fast track. What Basil had to offer Vladimir was a legitimizing tool which the Romans had never used before. He offered the prince the hand of his sister Anna in marriage. The 24-year-old Anna had been born within days of the death of her father, Romanus II, and of course she had been born in the Purple Room. Famously, Constantine VII, her grandfather, had written that it was forbidden for a Porfirogenita to marry a barbarian. The two recent imperial brides, who'd wedded the Bulgarian and Frankish emperors, had been the relatives of usurpers. Desperate times call for the breaking of established precedents. A Roman imperial bride, born in the purple, would convey instant stature and respectability on the otherwise grubby Vladimir. This caused quite a stir in Constantinople, not only because the Rus were the bloodthirsty bogeymen of Roman nightmares, but because Vladimir was a proud pagan, with four wives already and allegedly hundreds of concubines. One Western chronicler called him fornicator immensis. His conversion to Christianity was therefore a necessity for this deal to be acceptable to the Byzantine public. And fortunately, the Rus prince was happy to be baptized under these circumstances. In exchange for his new bride, Vladimir hastily dispatched 6,000 Scandinavian or Varangian troops to Constantinople. They arrived in spring 988. No significant action had taken place during the winter. Basil was determined to put his new soldiers to work as soon as he could. Despite his experience in Bulgaria, the emperor would lead the army in person. He knew that if he was ever going to be secure on the throne, he would have to master the military. Having been ambushed, he now attempted a surprise of his own. He led a combined Roman Varangian force across the Bosphorus at night and surprised Delphinus's camp. The shocked eastern troops were easily beaten and dispersed. Many were killed or captured and taking a much harsher tone with a defeated rebel, the emperor had Delphinus hanged in the middle of his camp. Other officers were apparently impaled. Basil returned to the capital, his confidence boosted by this ruthless victory. At Nicaea, Phocas took the remnants of Delphinus's force and headed to Abydus himself. He spent the rest of the year trying to force his way in, but to no avail. The imperial fleet were nearby, and they kept the fortress well supplied. The emperor also dispatched a small force east under the command of Gregory of Tehran. Gregory had been part of Sclerosis' initial rebellion, but had been forgiven. His mission was to menace the Phocas home base, in an attempt to draw troops away from Abydus. Basically the same plan the government had used against Scleros a decade earlier. Phocas sent his son Nicephorus to recruit men to stop them. Nicephorus made contact with David of Tau, who agreed to lend him a small cavalry force. The two sides met that summer, and the Iberian riders were again too strong for the imperial force. However, when David learned that Basil had been victorious at Chrysopolis, he withdrew his men. Despite his close ties to Phocas, he didn't want to commit to one side or another for fear of reprisals. Another winter 
came and went. Focus was no closer to crossing to Europe, but no likelier to loosen his grip on Anatolia. As spring arrived, Basil decided to break the deadlock as soon as the weather would allow. Again, he decided that he had to face down the rebel in person. It was a brave decision. Although he had recruited more men, and the Varangians had lived up to their reputation, he still had the inferior force. The only advantage he had was manoeuvre. Focus's men had to stay at Abydos, and many of them were rusty, having spent the past 18 months sitting outside the walls. Basil's army crossed over in April 989 and were lined up opposite the rebel camp by the middle of the month. The imperial forces drew first blood by attacking along the coast road unexpectedly. Phocas ordered his men forward to engage in a pitched battle. But as the early exchanges took place, Bardas Phocas was suddenly off his horse and on the ground, dead. As soon as the news spread, his troops abandoned the battle. Not only did the loss of their leader destroy their cohesion, but it was also a pretty clear demonstration of God's opinion on the matter. This was unbelievably good fortune for Basil. His army simply had to push forward to complete the rout. Several important officers surrendered, and Focus's decapitated head was in a box by the end of the day. So what happened to Bardas Focus? Leo the Deacon, who wrote during Basil's reign, says that Focus was simply killed in battle. Perhaps that's what happened, though it would be odd for the commander of an army to be in the front line. John Skylitzis, writing over a hundred years later, adds more detail. He says that Phocas was making a charge directly towards Basil, hoping to end the battle in one stroke, but that as he approached, he suddenly dismounted and lay down dead, either because of a wound he'd suffered or because he'd been poisoned before the battle. This answers the question of why Phocas was in the thick of things, but Skylitzis is a questionable reporter. He also claimed that Phocas and Scleros had fought hand-to-hand during the earlier civil war, an implausible embellishment. Michael Pselos wrote about 70 years from now, and he would have talked to people who were there, but unfortunately he has a more specific agenda even than Skylitzis. He says that he's heard four explanations. That Phocas was hit by a javelin, that he had a stomach disorder, that the Emperor Constantine killed him, that's Basil's younger brother, who was apparently at the battle, and finally, that he was poisoned. Despite giving us options, Pselos makes it clear that he thinks it was D, poison. The options he gives us are probably a fair summary of the popular imagination. If Phocas was simply wounded in action, then you can imagine that many soldiers would have claimed that they were the one who threw the fateful spear. Perhaps even Constantine, though that may just be a dig at the less-than-active Vasilevs. Given Byzantine medical knowledge, the stomach disorder could be read as any number of illnesses. Modern historians wonder if Phocas had a heart attack or a stroke and simply collapsed unexpectedly. Then, finally, we come to poison. Both Skylitzis and Pselos report that Phocas's servant was bribed to tamper with his pre-battle water. The problem with poison is that it's just the sort of rumour that would spread if Phocas had died of a heart attack. And of course, the more you think it through, the more logical it seems. Basil had ordered a night attack on Delphinus's men, He'd impaled honourable officers. He'd married his sister to a pagan barbarian. Why wouldn't he poison his enemy? In fact, Basil would look strange 
not poisoning Bardas' focus. He was, after all, the key to the whole rebellion, and the Emperor had the inferior army. Ha! <laughs> Obviously, he poisoned him. But of course, we have no real evidence for that. And it's a case of the boy who cried wolf. Throughout Roman history, writers cry poison at any unexpected death. Lycapinos was accused of poisoning Zimisces, Theophano of killing Romanus II. Just because in this case it seems like it would have been a really good idea to poison Phocas doesn't mean that Basil did it. And yet, here we are. Basil made the courageous decision to go into battle himself, and his much more experienced opponent fell dead at his feet. Basil celebrated a triumph after the battle. To have defeated the great Bardas Phocas was a fact he had to publicize. God was on the Emperor's side. He paraded Phocas's head around the city and led the defeated rebel officers behind him. He executed several of them, though apparently Leo Melusinus begged for his life and was granted it. Phocas's head was then dispatched east to show to his remaining holdouts and his family. When she heard the news, Phocas's widow released Bardas Skleros from captivity. Despite keeping him prisoner, the Phocads had treated him well, and they knew that he was the only man capable of continuing the rebellion on behalf of the Eastern Army. But the general was now in his late sixties, and he'd spent the best part of the last twelve years under house arrest. He made it clear to those around him that he did not want to add to this tally. The remnants of Phocas's army made their way east and hailed Skleros, emperor, including both of Bardas Phocas's sons, an extraordinary turnaround. No one seemed to mind that the general didn't want to be emperor anymore. By this point, they just wanted a powerful spokesman who could negotiate on their behalf. They were all terrified that the emperor would execute them cruelly or humiliate them in the streets of the capital. The deal was done in October that year. No one would be hanged. Basil's brutality had had the desired effect. The rebels came to him with their tails between their legs. From a position of dominance, he was able to be merciful. Skleros and his senior men would receive court titles, ensuring a comfortable retirement. Skleros, though, would not return to his home. New lodgings were found for him in Thrace, where the government could keep an eye on him. He died peacefully two years later. Bardas's son Nicephorus also surrendered and resumed his private life. Phocas's other son Leo tried to hold Antioch for himself and was exiled for the attempt. So ends the rebellions of the two Bardases, and with them the dominance of the Corcuas and Phocas families. They would not be trusted with high command again. Over the past 60 years, the alliance between those families and the Macedonians has taken Byzantium to new heights. But the emperor could not allow the army to become an independent faction, and in the end, Constantinople still had too much power to be overwhelmed by its military. As we discussed during our mini end-of-the-century tour, it's entirely possible that a Skleros or Phocas victory would not have changed much about Byzantium. They might both have concluded that further expansion was profitless. However, it is possible that the army's emperor would have felt honour-bound to continue campaigning in Syria, to provide opportunities for their men to win riches and glory. Maybe we even glimpsed a potential scenario in the proposed division of power between Skleros and Phocas. 
I mean, I don't think they could have worked together. But if Bardas Focus had focused on the West and left his two sons to go on the offensive in the East, maybe there was a different future there for Byzantium, one based on recreating a Christian empire in the Levant. As Mark Witto says, this would have involved a revolution in the orthodox ideology of Constantinople. For the past three centuries, church and state have tried to get everyone on the same page and at times persecuted outliers. But an expanding Roman Empire would have required the cooperation of Georgian, Armenian and Arab Christians, as well as local Muslims. A somewhat tolerant, truly multi-ethnic empire with a massive army would have been called for. All things which the establishment at Constantinople have been resisting for the past 30 years. In the end, the Roman capital still exerted too great a pull over its political system to be overwhelmed. The impregnable fortress on the Bosphorus remained the legitimizing machine of Romania. Without control of it, no rebel could reasonably hope to rule. Before we wrap up, though, we need to tie up a few loose ends from the Civil War. Around the same time that Bardas Focus met his end, Prince Vladimir marched on Cherson, the Roman outpost in the Crimea, and sacked it. We aren't sure why. Two theories come forward. One, that Anna had not yet been sent, and this was a forceful response to the delay. The other is that Cherson had declared for Phocas, and Vladimir was recovering it for Basil. Either way, Anna was put on a boat, reluctantly, by most accounts, to marry Vladimir. The ceremony took place in Cherson, as did Vladimir's baptism. The Rus returned home accompanied by dozens of Byzantine priests who began to convert the masses. The marriage was headline news in the courts of Europe and began the movement of the Rus into the mainstream of the continent's culture. In this same half-century, leaders in Hungary, Poland and Denmark would all convert to Christianity as well. The Rus would now be seen as a kingdom on a par with all the others. As with Bulgaria, Christianity brought the framework for cultural unity and acceptance of the political system, or, as Mark Witto puts it, the buildings, ceremonies and literature of the new religion gave Vladimir and his successors the means to display and articulate their dominance. Basil, meanwhile, was so pleased with the performance of the Varangians that he formed them into a new unit of the Tachmata, and from that group he would hand-pick a personal bodyguard who would become popularly known as the Varangian Guard. For the next two centuries, they would draw their recruits primarily from Scandinavia. Many would serve for a few years before heading home. This suited the emperors well, because without a stake in society, the loyalty of the Varangians was only to their employer. As various historians note, this development was similar to dynamics in the world of the former caliphate, where Turkish soldiers had long dominated the armies, freeing the caliphs from dependence on domestic generals who could turn into political rivals. Naturally then, after his experience in the civil wars, Basil was happier to have a group of intimidating aliens watching his back. It's also worth noting, though, that this is a Roman tradition. Throughout the empire's history, emperors have recruited special groups to guard their person, including the creation of the Tachmata itself, removing the best soldiers from the provinces and lodging them at the capital to ensure their loyalty was to the regime. Finally, 
Basil was determined to deal with the one foreign Christian ruler who'd sided with Bardas Focus. Despite his relatively small part in the civil wars, David of Tau had demonstrated that his loyalty was not to the crown. The emperor sent word that this was unacceptable and began to gather his army to march on Tau. At this news, David offered to leave his kingdom to the Romans upon his death. The same arrangement which had seen Tehran become a Roman province. David was already at war with some of his Armenian neighbours. An imperial army would likely finish him off. This deal was a much better one. His family would be given Roman court titles and administer the realm on behalf of the empire. Basil accepted these terms and elevated David to the rank of Curopalates. Antony Caldellis says... In a sense, David was being treated in a similar way to Scleros, a court title accompanied by historical obsolescence. The emperor also bestowed titles on other leading Georgians, apparently planning for the transfer of sovereignty. As we saw during our mini-tour, this was the nature of Roman expansion in the mountains, the local elites would continue to function much as they always had, but now that they were on the payroll, they would be expected to fall into line with Byzantine interests and send men to serve on campaign. In many ways, the civil wars had benefited Basil. He was undisputed master of the Roman world and even enjoyed the legitimacy of personal military victories but the experience had changed him. Next time, we focus on the personality of Basil II. What was he like? What do we know for sure? And what lessons had he taken from these epic civil conflicts? Before I go, I'll just say that if there are any poetry fans out there, you can now listen to the Gerard Manley Hopkins podcast made by my father. Lance Pearson. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.